Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noel Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, please become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. Your support helps us keep producing this podcast, as well as other resources and courses we have in the work. We also lead pilgrimages to some of the great regions of Catholic life in the United States. Itineraries include Maryland, Wisconsin, Santa Fe, the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, which is one of our favorites, New Orleans, Philadelphia, and other great destinations. For more, visit our website, American. AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others find us. Today, we're talking about the Josephites. The Josephites are the only religious order that exists solely to work with black Catholics in America. Now, this is a bit of a challenging episode because while the Josephites have a truly inspired and inspiring origin story, unfortunately, the reception they received and how some of their leadership handled things wasn't so inspiring. Yeah, rather maddening, actually. Yeah, I mean, saying, well, those were the times only goes so far when you're talking about Christians utterly failing to welcome each other as fellow children of God in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. All right. But let's not lead with the negative. Let's start with the inspiring founding. Yes. Okay. The origin of the Josephites goes back to one man, the English priest, Father Herbert Vaughn. Herbert Vaughn was born in 1832 in Gloucester, England, the eldest of his parents' 13 children. Vaughn's father was of an old English recusant Catholic family, which means that they had never left the Catholic faith after the English Reformation. Yeah, that's dedication. 300 years of holding on to the faith despite bitter opposition by the violently anti-Catholic English authorities. Now, his mother wasn't born Catholic, but she was a convert and she was very devoted to the faith. The Catholic tenacity of the Vaughn parents certainly showed itself in their family life because of the 13 children... All five daughters became nuns, and six of the eight sons were ordained priests. Not only that, but three of the boys, including Herbert, were also made bishops. Herbert, however, was the only cardinal among them. Yeah, the rest were slackers. Seriously, I know, right? Yeah. So, needless to say, Herbert Vaughn had a tenacious and zealous Catholic pedigree. In Herbert's case, that also meant a significant desire to become a missionary. From an early age, he desired to go out and convert the pagans. And so as he studied for the priesthood in Belgium and then in Rome, he kept this flame alive in his heart. But once ordained, he decided that what he really needed to do was to found a college dedicated to sending out missionaries. He reasoned that while he himself would be able to go out and do great work in the mission field, if he instead poured his efforts into establishing a missionary society and college that would outlast him, that would have an even greater impact for the church. So that's what he did. And in 1866, the missionary college at Mill Hill, about eight miles north of London, was born. He called it the St. Joseph Missionary Society because St. Joseph was the first missionary. And then one of those great moments of God's providence connecting a need with the provider happened. By the end of the 1860s, the society was established and was preparing priests for missionary activity. So Father Vaughn petitioned the Pope, Pius IX, to grant some missionary territory to his society. 
As it happened in 1869, the bishops of the United States met together in the 10th Provincial Council of Baltimore. The fifth decree, which the council adopted, was to establish missions and schools for the Negroes of their dioceses. This effort was led by the Archbishop of Baltimore, Martin John Spaulding. Spaulding had been the second bishop of Louisville. He was made Archbishop of Baltimore in 1864. If you know your U.S. history, you know that that means he was in Louisville, Kentucky, and Baltimore, Maryland before and during the Civil War. And giving those important positions, what he had to say on the question of slavery was not unimportant. Archbishop Spalding's position basically was that shadow slavery was bad and should end. However, and this is where things must be talked about carefully, he did not believe immediate abolition was the right approach. He believed that since the slaves had been so ill-treated and so ill-prepared for life completely on their own, that just releasing them all to their own devices would be basically as bad a state as just remaining slaves. He believed that slave owners had a moral obligation to treat slaves well. This included providing for their spiritual and temporal needs and not allowing families to be broken up. He believed that slaves had an absolute right to the sacraments and to education. We talked about this approach when we talked about Father Stephen Baden in episode 98. Father Baden was the first priest ordained in the U.S., and he was very active in Kentucky. Father Baden had slaves, but he treated them very much as fellow workers in the vineyard. By doing their part in maintaining his homestead, he was able to go and do the work of a missionary. And he, for his part, made sure they had all access to sacraments, education, and the joys of intact family life. Both Father Baden and Archbishop Spalding also believed that shadow slavery would eventually die off a natural death as agriculture became more mechanized, so they did not believe a sudden government intervention, and certainly not a war, was necessary. But war came. Slavery was ended, and suddenly the millions of newly freed slaves needed tremendous support. So Archbishop Spalding petitioned the Holy Father for help, and in 1869, at the 10th Provincial Council, he got the rest of the bishops of the U.S. to join him. And so Pope Pius IX received from America a request for missionaries to serve the newly freed blacks, and from England he received a request for a place to send missionaries. Perfect. The providence of God placed demand and supply before the Holy Father, and the connection was made. When Pius IX gave the mission of evangelizing the newly freed slaves in America to the St. Joseph Missionary Society, he also gave them an oath to swear. The oath, called the Negro Oath, required the missionaries to, quote, vow and solemnly declare that I will make myself the father and servant of the Negroes, nor shall I ever take up any other work which might cause me to abandon or in any way neglect the special care of the Negroes. So help me God and these his holy gospels. So now, the St. Joseph Missionary Society, known as the Mill Hill Missionaries, were ready. In 1871, Father Herbert Vaughn and a group of priests crossed the Atlantic to establish their first house in a foreign land. They established their home base in Baltimore. But Father Herbert didn't just plop down some priests and leave. He made a tour of America, especially the southern states, stopping in major cities and places with large concentrations of newly freed black Americans. New Orleans, Mobile, Natchez, St. Louis, Memphis, Savannah, and Charleston. He also coordinated support for building institutions. 
This is something he did a lot and very effectively throughout his life, raising money to build buildings. As a quick aside, later in his life, he was the third Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster there in London, which is the primatial see of England and Wales. In that role, he was responsible for building the massive and very unique Cathedral of Westminster. In America, at least initially, support came somewhat easily. Not only had the bishops committed to supporting the work that the Mill Hill Fathers came to do, but support also came from the wealthy heiress-turned-nun Catherine Drexel. Drexel, who was canonized in 2000, spent a considerable amount of her personal fortune supporting schools, orphanages, missions, and other institutions for Black and Native American Catholics. So things started out fairly well for the Mill Hill Fathers. They had the backing of the bishops, they had a steady stream of trained missionary priests coming from England, and they had Drexel's money. They were able to build parishes, schools, and more all over. However, managing the missionary activities from England became too much for Vaughn, especially after he was named Bishop of Salford in the northwest of England. So as the 1890s began, the missionaries in America separated from the St. Joseph Missionary Society with the full blessing of Bishop Vaughn and Pope Leo XIII. The new missionary society was called the Society of St. Joseph of the Sacred Heart, or the Josephites for short, and it was established under the wing of the new Archbishop of Baltimore, the one and only James Cardinal Gibbons. Now there's a name we've not mentioned much, which is shocking considering how big of an impact he had on the American church. But Cardinal Gibbons will certainly get his own episode, and he'll figure in more episodes in the future. Among the priests who helped found the Josephites as a separate society was Charles Uncles, who was the first black man ordained a priest in the U.S., now a note, Father Augustus Tolton was the first black identifying priest, but he was ordained in Rome. Correct. Yeah, and Cardinal Gibbons had ordained uncles in the Cathedral of the Assumption in 1891. But black priests were not common in America, even within the Josephite-served communities. In fact, while the Josephites actively worked to knock down racial barriers within the church at large, a calculation of prudence kept them from admitting many black men to seminary or welcoming more black priests among their ranks for many decades. And unfortunately, it wasn't entirely unwarranted. Racism within the church as in the culture the church worked within, remained a problem for many years. The Josephites couldn't find a parish to place Father Uncles where the bishop, the other priests in the area, and the laity all would welcome him. He was relegated to little more than speaking tours in the Deep South, and by the end of his life, he pretty much stopped considering himself a Josephite. It's just very sad. Yeah, it really is. He wasn't the only co-founder of the Josephites to be utterly scandalized by the hardened racism he experienced in so many parts of the church. Father John Slattery, who was white, he had a grand vision of a large number of black priests working throughout the church in America, and lots of schools to really empower black families. He eventually renounced the priesthood, left the faith, became a lawyer in New York, and eventually got married. It is so sad how badly some people can be affected by the sin of others. Yeah, seriously. We actually saw an example of this built-in racism within the church when we visited St. Rose Priory in Kentucky. We were there while on our pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country last August. It was an amazing trip, and I can't wait to go back. Yeah, we're going back in October, and we hope everyone will join us. Information about that and all our present pilgrimage itineraries is available at our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages. Right, but 
At St. Rose, unfortunately, there is a door on the facade that opens directly onto the staircase going up to the balcony. That was the door for the black Catholics, and they had to sit upstairs for years. So yeah, even while we were at this beautiful historic church where so many good and important things happened, there still was a reminder that wherever you find man, you find sin. And that sin too often harms others unjustly. Yeah. We actually did an episode on the history of St. Rose and the Dominicans who founded it. But the history we focused on was mostly before that facade and its extra door were built. I don't know that uh, Edward Dominic Fenwick, OP, would have accepted such an offense. Yeah, I don't think so either. And even even though that door and its history is there, it doesn't ruin the overall experience. The whole trip was fantastic. I hope many people come with us in October. But unfortunately, that sort of thing did happen in places, too many places. Mm -hmm. And the Josephites fought against it wherever they encountered it. But they couldn't fight against the entire culture, plus the hierarchy and priests alone. This episode is another look at basically the bipolar nature of the church in America on the race question. You had some bishops like Archbishop Patrick Fee in, in Chicago, who welcomed Father Augustus Tolton when his own bishop in Alton also in Illinois, James Ryan rejected him. We told Venerable Augustus Tolton's story in episode 122. He had actually tried to join the Josephites, but they didn't yet have a seminary in the U.S. where he could study. And then another bishop who bucked the trend was Vincent Waters in Raleigh. As we talked about in episode 124, Bishop Waters did a lot to end segregation and racist tendencies in parishes and Catholic institutions in North Carolina in the 1950s. In fact, while the church certainly had significant ugly issues with racism and segregation, the work of the Josephites and bishops like Vincent Waters did a lot to help usher in the era of the black civil rights movement. And as could be expected, Josephite priests paid the price for their labor of love. They were almost entirely white, but they faced abuse and ridicule, and in at least one case, something worse. In 1926, Father Vincent Warren, who was white, was kidnapped by the Ku Klux Klan. Now, he was released unharmed, thank God, and he went on to have a long and excellent career as a Josephite priest, founding parishes and leading many good works. But the work was never easy. No, it wasn't. But it was so, so appreciated in the places where the Josephites managed to establish their parishes and institutes. The laity loved them. In 1909, four Josephite priests and three black laymen in Mobile, Alabama, did another great thing to aid black Catholics. They founded the Knights of St. Peter Claver. The Knights of St. Peter Claver is a fraternal organization similar to the Knights of Columbus, but explicitly for black Catholics. The reason for founding it was similar to the reason the Knights of Columbus was founded. Black Catholic men were joining secret societies like the Freemasons for the social and economic advantages that membership afforded. The problem, of course, course, is that the church forbids membership in such societies. So rather than just forbid the men the opportunities that the organization would provide, these seven men started their own organization, but within the bounds of Catholicism. Forty men were inducted at the inaugural ceremony, and the Knights of St. Peter Claver spread throughout black Catholic America. Today, the Knights and Ladies of St. Peter Claver is the largest Catholic fraternal organization for black people in America. As an aside, Peter Claver, for those who don't know, was a Spanish Jesuit who did so much amazing missionary work among slaves in the Americas in the 17th century that he was named the patron saint of slaves and of African Americans. So naming the organization in his honor made a lot of sense. Things began to change for the Josephites in the 1940s and 1950s. As the era of the civil rights movement began to dawn, more dioceses were more and more open to the idea of black priests and doing more things on the 
their own to serve the black Catholic community and end racist segregationist practices. This thawing, if you will, encouraged the Josephites also to adjust their policy and begin to accept more black men into formation. And as time has marched on, the Josephites find themselves with a smaller scope for their mission. With the success of the civil rights movement, there just aren't as many all-black enclaves which are underserved by the church. That's not to say they don't exist or that their needs aren't significant, but in most parts of the country, the diocese has resources in place to help with those needs. Yeah, most, but not all. No, certainly not. And this is why the Josephites are still needed. But nowadays it is a smaller order. Rather than the 300 priests and brothers which they had at the peak, they have just 55 members with 19 men in formation. And with those 55 members, they staff 38 parishes in seven states and Washington, D.C., along with four grade schools and an all-boys high school in New Orleans. It is the only private Catholic high school exclusively for black boys in the country. As the 21st century wears on, the Josephites continue their mission of serving the black Catholic community, helping to preserve and promote a uniquely black voice in the church, and serving those black Catholics who have no one else to serve them. And judging by the love shown by so many of their parishioners and students, they still do a very good job of upholding that oath of Pius IX, making themselves the father and servant of those whom they serve never abandoning nor neglecting the special care owed to their flock. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. Also, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about the Josephites, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes at our website. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.